The following teaching is from the 2015 Man Up Men's Retreat at Trinity Pines. We hope it is a blessing to you. For more information about the men's ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. That's houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. Guys, welcome. My name is Adam Mason. My official title is Minister of Counseling Services. Quite an, an official-sounding thing. Uh, I'm in charge of all things counseling at Houston First Baptist Church. January 1st, I will have been here 17 years. So it's hard to believe, hard to imagine. So very much glad that you guys are here. It's been amazing to see what God uh, is doing in and through the church, uh, and particularly in and through the men's ministry. Wow, what a fantastic group. Yes, sir? Um, I don't know. We got, yeah, we got some more over here on this side. Great, they'll get, get them back to you. Let's begin with a, a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this group of men. Uh, I know that there are men at this retreat who are in bondage. Father, need to be set free. There are men that are being held by strongholds of their thinking, and they need to see those strongholds crushed today by the power of your truth. Pray, Father, we could experience you, and that in experiencing you, we might see ourselves through your eyes and the brokenness that that brings, and the brokenness that leads to freedom in you, Father. We pray against Satan and his his, uh, temptations to lead us into self-condemnation, shame, despair, defeat, or to convince us somehow that we're not the men you created us to be. We pray, Father, you would bind him, uh, not allow uh, him to have any authority at this conference or any power. Instead, allow us to hear your voice and yours alone as you guide us today. For in your name we pray. Amen. All right. In your handout, I've got a description of our time today together. It says, many men find themselves battling the same sin over and over, longing for freedom but settling for management. And by management, I mean sin management. You know? um, Larry Crabb says that rather than seeking freedom, most men simply seek to learn how to manage their sin more effectively. They're not looking for freedom, but sin management strategies. So settling for management and discouragement. In this session, we'll look at the cycle of sin in the context of a larger battle, the battle between self-obsession and God-obsession. Those are our only two choices. We're either self-obsessed or God-obsessed. Those are the only two masters that are there. And so each day, each question is, am I facing today from a place of self-obsession or from a place of God-obsession? It becomes a lot simpler when we start looking at it in that context. So patterns of sin do not indicate defectiveness. We could say they indicate humanness. But they also indicate bondage. We do not need to be fixed. We need to be set free. Absolute truth. The Bible says that in the creation narrative, God declared, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, man was created. And we know that because of that, each of us is an image bearer. The imago Dei is the theological term for man being created in the image of God. And because God is infinite, there's an infinite number of expressions of who he is. Therefore, each of us has been uniquely created to reflect the image of God as only we can. That is what makes you unique. That is what makes you special. 
the unique way that you reflect the image of God. You will never be more fulfilled as a man than when you discover the man that God created you to be and you're living as that man with passion. That's my hope, is that you'll catch a little bit clearer glimpse of what that means here today, to live in that place of passion. Your specialness, your uniqueness, is the unique way that you reflect the image of God. Satan wants you to think that your uniqueness is the way that you sin. And in doing so, wants to hold you into shame and self-condemnation. We're going to talk about how to be free from that today. We're going to start with the first of two passages. Our first passage is going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. And then we're going to look in the Old Testament. We're going to cover both Testaments today. Uh, We'll look at Isaiah uh, a little bit later. So Romans 7, the battle that we have with sin, the battle we have with the cycle of sin and the struggle, as depicted by Paul. Romans 7, starting with verse 14. I've got the text on your handout if you want to follow along. That's in the Holman Christian version. For we know that the law is spiritual. Uh, By law, he's talking about the Old Testament law that was given to the children of Israel by the Spirit of God. Uh, Are there still some handouts available Uh, up here? Might want to grab one of those? Sure. Of course. The Great Divide. The two sides, the flesh and the spirit. Which side are you on? For we know that the law, the Old Testament law, is spiritual. But I am made out of flesh, sold into sin's power. In our, we're born in the flesh as carnal creatures, struggling with the flesh. That's all that we have. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do. Instead, I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. It, in that passage, is the law. The law is good. In other words, if the law says this, and I keep doing this, even though I'm doing this, I'm not saying that this is good. I agree with the law that what I'm doing is wrong, but I just keep doing what's wrong. All right? So, I am, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner being, my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. All right, anybody relate to that passage? Just me and the two or three of you? All right. Isn't it powerful to, to find that description of the battle with sin in Scripture so plainly stated? What Paul is saying is that when I become a Christian, and we're going to get to this in just a second, when I become a Christian, when I am justified, that first stage of the process of spiritual formation, that God's Spirit is placed inside of me. 
And God's spirit desires the things that please God. That, that's the deepest part of who I am. The deepest part of who I am is not my sinfulness. Remember, the deepest part of who I am is the, the image of God. That's the deepest part of who I am. So the deepest heart part of who I am, when that's energized by the Holy Spirit placed inside of me at the moment of justification, the things I most want to do are the things that please God and honor God. That's really who I am. That's really what I want to be. But you know what? You know, I was however old I was at the time that I became Christ. I spent all this time walking in the flesh, feeding my flesh. And that part of me is much stronger. Yeah, it doesn't go away. You know, I know the scripture says that therefore if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Old things are passed away and all things are made new. But that's a, that's a process, number one. And number two, it it's, describes for us the way God sees us. Because at the moment of justification, God sees you as the finished product. He no longer sees the sin struggle that you're going through. Right, we'll get to that in just a second. More. But it begins that battle that we're walking out day in and day out between the flesh and the spirit. That part of me that still wants to serve the flesh, that's selfish, that wants to feel better, that wants to feel good, that wants to avoid pain. And that part of me that wants to honor God, and that battle begins. That is the deepest battle that you will ever fight. The battle he's talking about in Romans 7. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. The problem is, is that Satan deceives us, and instead of fighting that battle, we fight the battle on a much more shallow battlefield. We fight a battle with our wife. We fight a battle with our children. We fight a battle with the other drivers in Houston traffic. We fight a battle with our boss or our in-laws or our neighbors. We fight it up here on this pretty shallow plane. And then we get discouraged and we get defeated. And so we reach out for the things of this world to comfort us and make us feel better. And that's where these cycles of sin come in. It's because we're fighting the battle of sin on much too shallow a level. Instead of fighting the battle here between the flesh and the spirit, we're fighting it up here. Does that make sense? And so part of the cycle of spiritual maturity is learning how to fight the battle on a deeper level. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. There was a sermon that was preached many years ago on this passage that described this passage as a dogfight between two dogs. There's this one dog that's the flesh, and it's bigger because it's been there longer. And there's this other dog that is the spirit, and it's this dogfight between the two of them. Somebody asked the preacher, well, how do you know which one's going to be in control? And the preacher said, it's really easy. It's whichever dog I feed the most. There are things that we do that feed the flesh. And there are things that we do that feed the spirit. And in the moment of temptation, it's too late to start feeding the dog. In the moment of temptation, it's too late to start feeding the dog. In the moment of temptation, whichever dog you've been feeding is the dog that's going to win. Does that make sense? And sometimes we get into the pattern where the only food we're given the spirit dog is when we come to church on Sunday morning. And that just ain't enough kibbles and bits. You hear me? Spirit dog needs more than that to face temptation. Let's talk about this in the context of spiritual formation. We've thrown some terms out there. 
Let's define it for you, spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is a process by which a Christian is shaped and formed into the image of Christ. At its core, it's the death of the flesh and the release of the new creation through transformation, the battle between self-obsession and God-obsession. Spiritual formation requires the work of the Trinity. This process has its origin in Genesis, where man was made in the image of God. While the fall did bring sin into the life of man, man still represents the image of God. When a person receives Christ through salvation, the personal process of spiritual formation begins. The Holy Spirit continues that work. Now, there are three distinct stages of spiritual formation, this process of becoming more like Christ. First phase is justification. Holy Spirit comes to you, convicts you of your sin, reveals to you your need for God. You're in brokenness over your sin. You turn to God. You pray the sinner's prayer. You invite Jesus into your life. The Holy Spirit enters you. That's the moment of justification. Typically, we call that salvation in Baptist world. Some of the other mainline evangelical denominations think of salvation as a process of justification, sanctification, and glorification, because we believe that once you're justified, that process is sealed. We're comfortable equating salvation with justification. Does that make sense? It's, it's begun. It's going to finish. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of his appearing. Philippians 1.6. Justification. Sanctification. When a person receives Christ, the Holy Spirit is placed inside of them. Part of the work that the Holy Spirit does in an individual is to shape them in the image of Christ. And that's the primary stage that we're at today. Glorification. This is the final stage of the process where we receive our glorified bodies, our new name, and we are completing Christ. This will happen in heaven. I have two assumptions today. First assumption is that most of you guys here are Christians that you've already experienced a salvation experience as part of your draw of coming here today. If for some reason uh, you're here today and that's not something you've experienced yet, I would love to have a conversation with you um, afterwards and describe more what I'm talking about. But the assumption is that most of the people here have already gone through that. The second assumption that I have for you guys is that none of you are dead. <laughs> it's a little bit better response than I got in the first session. I wasn't quite so sure. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And so the, uh, and that is that you've not been glorified yet. So we're all in that process of sanctification while working out our salvation from that process. Let's talk a little bit more about what that process of sanctification looks like. Now I'll say this, that Scripture is clear that at the moment of salvation, that moment of justification, and God's Spirit dwells within you, that God already sees you as if you've been glorified. Because he's the one that's responsible for that process. He's the one that takes you through this. So because it's by his hand that you're going to be glorified, he can go ahead and see you now as you're going to be. So there's a great hope that comes from knowing that God sees me as I'm already completed, even though I'm still working it out here. All right? Let's turn the page and get a, a little bit closer look of, about what the sanctification process looks like. Through the years of working in the counseling center, working with people who have struggled, you know, I, I have this understanding of this battle that we all fight. And I believe that when you experience a common reality, that you're able to find that common reality expressed in Scripture, and you can find some truth there. And so I try to always take the, the common realities that I experience and try to find a, a place where Scripture speaks to that. And I found a passage in Isaiah that helps me understand this a little bit clearer. 
let me share with you some of the things I've seen and see if it makes some sense for you. So Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he replied, Go and say to these people. And the rest of the chapter is what God wanted Isaiah to tell the people of God. I see within this passage a cycle that describes what the children of Israel were going through in this moment but also predicts a pattern that continued to follow them throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But I also see within this pattern, within this cycle, something that describes what I go through on a pretty frequent basis within my, myself. And Let's take a look to see. I've got the cycle revealed for you. The first part of that cycle, the first stage of that, is what I call the wilderness of self-obsession. When you go back and you read Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah tells the people, stop coming to church, stop going to men's retreats, Stop going to Sunday school. Stop having fellowships. Stop giving your tithe. Stop giving your offerings. And you're thinking, my goodness, he's, he's going right through the list of all the stuff that Christians are supposed to do. Why is it suddenly that all these things that we tell people they're supposed to do all the time are now things they're not supposed to do? And God goes on to say through the prophet that you're doing these things to manipulate me. You somehow think that if you do all these church behaviors that you're going to get my blessing, you're going to get my favor. And the idea that you're doing these things just to get my blessing makes me sick to my stomach. I'm interested in a relationship with you. Come, sit down with me. Let's reason together. Let's have a conversation. Don't try to impress me with all your church behaviors. They're in this wilderness of self-obsession where even their Christianity, even their worship, was a desire to manipulate God. It was to get something for themselves. It wasn't an expression of a relationship with God. One of the things that we discover is that man can't get himself out of self-obsession. <laughs> that when you're self-obsessed, you are self-obsessed. You can't get yourself out of that. But one thing that we do know is that in your self-obsession, God pursues you. God steps into that. God pursues as a nature, as an aspect of his character. Pursuit for God is not something he does. It's part of who he is. We see it in the New Testament, in Romans 5.8, where it says, but God demonstrated his love towards us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or while we hated him, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate pursuit, isn't it? The pursuit of salvation. So here's Isaiah, a prophet, not seeking God. He's not off at a spiritual retreat. He's not off fasting and seeking God. In this self-obsession, God just shows up and reveals himself to Isaiah because God pursues as a part of his character. And what is Isaiah's response 
to God. It's brokenness. He says, woe to me, for I am ruined. Now in the King James Version, it says, woe to me, for I am undone. I kind of like undone a little bit better, because when I hear that, what I hear Isaiah saying is, all the strategies that I have for trying to manipulate you have just been laid out before you. I've been totally exposed. And I'm standing here with all of my motivations laid out. And I'm just, I'm undone. I mean, what can I do? There's, there's nothing I can do. I'm completely broken. I'm completely exposed before you, God. And I'm ruined. I don't think there's a better description of man in the presence of God than to say that we're totally exposed, we're totally undone, we're totally ruined, and we have nothing that we can stand on. All of our strategies fall away in that moment. But it's very interesting to, to see the difference between brokenness and self-condemnation. Because every time that God will call you to brokenness, Satan will try to deceive you into self-condemnation. And if you don't hear anything else from the talk other than this, this would be the one thing I want you, want you to hold away with or walk, walk away with, and that is that brokenness leads to freedom. Self-condemnation leads to bondage. I think a lot of you guys are stuck in that self-condemnation bondage. And when you're in bondage, there's no motivation. You're just really sitting around feeling sorry for yourself. Sure. That every time that God calls you to brokenness, that Satan will try to deceive you into self-condemnation. The thing I really want you to hear from this is that brokenness, true brokenness, always leads to freedom. But self-condemnation leads to bondage. Bondage steals your energy, steals your passion, takes you to a place of despondency and despair. Question. Yes. You know, we often, in church service, we often talk about being conditioned. Mm -hmm. uh, and often, uh, and maybe, maybe for me, there's a connotation of that there should be some element of shame that it is that when you're convicted, it should be that it's like there's a burden placed sure. on you. Uh, is that an actuality how it is? Sure. Let, let me describe the difference. And there's never a place for shame in the life of a Christian. Okay. When we look at Romans twelve two, or Hebrews twelve two, I mean, the, um, you talked about that last night, where it says that Jesus, for the glory set before Him, endured the cross, despising or scorning, depending on which translation you use. The shame of the cross. Okay. That's our biblical example for how we deal with shame. Because we have to despise it. We have to scorn it. And the word picture that's painted in the Hebrew there is very, very graphic. It literally means that you hurl it away with the intent to do harm. So the closest word picture that I like to use when I describe that is that they... We'll find the precious, most petite little lady that we that we find, and we we sit her up here, and we um, blindfold her, and I go and find a really good Texas-sized cockroach, and we place it on her hand, and we take the blindfold off. What is she going to do to that cockroach? She's going to hurl it away with the intent to do harm, right? 
She's going to hurl it away with the intent to do harm. That's what the scripture says to do with shame. That it's such a bondage for Christians. They were to have a violent reaction against that. It's an attitude about yourself that there's something defective about you and that comes straight from the pits of hell. That? Is that strong enough? Yeah, and I, was, and I guess the second part of the question was, you know, maybe what is the problem? Sure. Broken. Let's take a look at this. He, said, he says, Woe to me, for I am ruined because of a man of unclean lips. Now, self-condemnation puts the period there from a man of unclean lips. It would be saying, okay, God, I'm a lowly, miserable sinner. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. I keep asking you to forgive me. You forgive me, but yet I do it again. I don't understand how you can keep forgiving me for doing this. I can't forgive me to keep doing this. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Hey, we put the period there, but the period's not there. There's a comma. So Isaiah is saying, I'm a lowly, miserable sinner. I keep messing up. I keep doing the same thing over again. I keep asking you to forgive me. You, your word says that you forgive me, but I can't forgive me. I'm just like everybody else on this planet who keeps sinning. See the difference? That's what makes the difference. You're, it's the brokenness that says, I have a need for God just like everybody else has a need for God. There's nothing that I can do about this on my own. But when you say that I have a need for God that's stronger than somebody else's need for God, that's arrogant, it's wrong, and it's self-condemnation. You follow that? And that's what leads to that sense of shame, that sense of defectiveness. That somehow my sinfulness is worse than somebody else's. I'm a sinner, and, and I am going to continue to struggle with sin until the day I die and God glorifies me. And the sin that I do is just as bad as the sin that anybody else in this room does. I don't care what your sin is. The sin that I do is just as bad as what you're doing. I mean, the, the truth is, if we were to vote among ourselves and we were to find the least sin of anybody in the room, the least one single sinful act, Christ would still have had to die on the cross for that sin to be forgiven. So in his eyes, it's all in the same boat. So I am just as sinful as you, and I have just as much of a need for God as you do, but no worse. And I don't have a, a greater need for God than you do. It's the sense that we're all in the same boat. Remember, our specialness, our uniqueness, doesn't come from our sinfulness. It comes from the unique way we were created in the image of God. So it's a comma. You know, think of it in terms of that. That when you speak of your sinfulness, it's a comma. It says, and I'm just like everybody else. My need for God is just like everybody else. My struggle with sin is just like everybody else's. And that's what keeps you going from going down that path of self-condemnation or shame. That's the response is brokenness. So what happens to the brokenness? What's God's response to Isaiah's brokenness? It's in verse 6. It says, One of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Okay, so he goes, gets a live burning coal from the fire, brings that live burning coal and places it on the lips of Isaiah. What happens when you place a burning coal, a burning ember, on human flesh? It kills it. It puts that flesh to death. Like in medical terminology, they call that cauterizing a wound. It puts it to death. It sears it. There can be no spiritual growth without the death of the flesh. 
There can be no spiritual growth without the death of the flesh. That's why we fight it. That's why we choose sin, because sin is pleasurable and spiritual growth is painful. The noted theologian A.W. Tozier said, I am convinced that each one of us looks exactly as much like Christ as we really want to. The sad reality is each of us doesn't really want to look that much like Christ. Meaning that we fight against the brokenness that God calls us to because we fight against the pain that's there. And instead, we surround ourselves with things that are either the avoidance of pain or the pursuit of pleasure. If you think about all of the the strategies that you have that are of your flesh, all the strategies that you have fall into two categories, one of two categories, the pursuit of pleasure or the avoidance of pain. And that's trying to manage your life more effectively. So is is the response, God hears our cry and leads to death of the flesh? It's like the Puritan theologian said that at the moment, uh, I think it was John Owen, at the moment of justification, the flesh receives a mortal wound from which it will never recover. It means the process of death of the flesh begins at salvation. And it continues. And God keeps calling us into a deeper walk with him. He keeps calling us to a deeper death of the flesh. But we have different aspects of our flesh that we like. We have different aspects of our flesh that are comfortable for us. And what God tries to put to death, we put on life support. We fight against the work of the Spirit. The flesh is put to death. It's purified through that death process. And there's a creation of something new. Isaiah stands in the presence of God with a sin atoned for For the first time in his life, he's able to stand in the presence of God without sin because the sin has been taken care of by the death of the flesh. It's with us with salvation. Scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away and all things are made new. Uh, That sense that, okay, there's been a death now and there's been a creation. Something exists now that didn't exist before. And God's spirit is alive in that person in a life-giving way, an energizing way. And to that life-giving way, there's a release of energy, the passion. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. If you look in some of the older translations, they'll have exclamation points there because it's an exclamatory declarative response on the part of Isaiah. There's a passion in that. If you can think back to your own salvation, if it wasn't too far ago, or if it was, think about somebody you know recently who was saved. Maybe a baptism that you've seen, and there's an energy when someone becomes a a Christian. There's a passion when somebody becomes a Christian. That's the release of God's Spirit within that person. And to that vision, to that or to that passion, rather, God gives a vision. What's the first thing that you want to do when you when you become saved? You want to tell people. Does somebody tell you you need to tell people? No. Within God's passion, there's always an implicit vision. Within the passion God's placed inside of you, there's always a sense of direction. It's one of the first laws of motion, right? Any of you guys, in, engineers or physicists or remember Newton? It's one of the, I think, the first law of motion. The objects that are in motion remain in motion and objects that are at rest remain at rest until acted on by an outside force. In your brokenness, you are at rest. There's nothing you can do until you're acted on by an outside force, which is the presence of God. 
and then you're put in motion. And the motion is implicit within the actor, which is God. It's the creation of something new, releases his passion, which reveals his vision within us. And we stay in that place of vision, fulfilling who God created us to be, until something happens and we walk back into the wilderness of self-obsession. We see that happen with children with Israel. In just a couple of chapters after chapter 6, they're back in the place of self-obsession again, wandering in the wilderness. And they repeat that over and over again. God shows up, convicts them of their sin. The children of Israel respond. They repent. They walk with passion, declaring they're going to follow God. Happens for a while, and then they get tired of the bread they're eating, or tired of the meat they're eating, or tired of whatever, and they complain, and they go back into the wilderness of self-obsession. But think of it like this. The, the temptation that leads us from passion into self-obsession again is the temptation to doubt the goodness of God for you. The temptation to doubt the goodness of God. We see it occur the first time in Genesis, where the serpent shows up with Eve and says, why don't you eat of this fruit? And she says, well, if we eat of that fruit, God says we're going to die. And he says, no, you won't die if you eat of that. He doesn't want you to eat of that fruit, because if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. See, God's not trustworthy. He's willing to withhold something from you that's good for you. It's the same temptation that Satan uses today. Instead of living life at this deeper battleground, we're living life on the shallow battleground. We're living life with our, with our wife. And, you know, our wife just doesn't give us enough respect. She just doesn't show us enough care. She doesn't show us enough appreciation, right? And so I, I'm entitled to that somehow, you know, and God's not letting me experience that in my marriage. So I'm going to have this conversation over here that I know God wouldn't want me to have. Or I'm going to look at this image over here that I know that God doesn't want me to look at. Or I'm going to have this set of thoughts and this behavior over here that I know wouldn't be pleasing to God. Because somehow I'm entitled to this. God's withholding something from me that's good. And at its core, that sin is an expression that I don't trust the goodness of God for me. There's something that I need that God's not letting me have, and so I'm going to go and get it on my own. You see that? And when we doubt the goodness of God, and we start living life by our strategies again, we find ourselves back in the wilderness of self-obsession, trying to live life on our own, waiting for God to show up. What are some practical applications of this by way of conclusion? What do we do? How do we help to break this cycle? I want to give you four things. The first thing that I would tell you is to find God. To try to make it a regular practice of yourself, periodically just stop wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and find God. Scripture tells us that as a believer, he's present inside of you that he's ever-present, that he's always working in our life. If that's true, we should be able to find him. We should be able to see him working. Increase your awareness of God's work in you and around you and through you. So stop what you're doing and find God. Number two, I would say embrace brokenness and reject shame. And when you truly find God and see where God's working, that's going to take you to a place of brokenness because man can't stand in the presence of an awesome and holy God without being broken. So embrace the brokenness that comes from finding God, but reject the shame. Remember, there's no place in the life of a believer for shame. Number three, receive the vision of your true identity. Receive the vision of your true identity. That God wants to show you who you are. He wants to show you the unique way that he created you to represent him to others. Are you willing to receive that? 
It could very well be that the very first sin was the rejection of the identity that God gave. It could be that the very first sin was the rejection of the identity that God gave. God came to Lucifer, who he created as the angel of light. said, I've created you to be the most beautiful angel of light. And what does Satan say? What does Lucifer say? That's ah, not good enough. I want to be like you. I'm rejecting the identity you gave me. It's not good enough. I want a different identity. I want to be like you. He rejected the identity. What does Adam do in the garden? Eve is being tempted by the Satan, by the serpent, right? And the serpent is twisting the things that God said. Well, where's Adam while Eve is being tempted? Right there. Scripture says Eve took of the fruit and ate of it and turned and gave it to Adam who was with her, literally standing right beside her. So Adam was silent. Well, in Genesis 2, when man is created, the word that's used for male is only translated male when it's translated as a noun. When that word is used in the verb or infinitive form, it means the remembering one, to remember. So literally, the identity that God gave Adam is the remembering one. He's the one that, he told, that God told the rule to. Eve wasn't created when God gave the rule to Adam. God created Adam, gave Adam the rule, then determined it's not good for Adam to be alone, put him in the garden to name all the animals, then created Eve. So God gave Adam the rule, and then God gave Adam the identity of the remembering one, implication, remember the rule, and he's standing by Eve while she's being tempted, and does he remember? He certainly doesn't remind. And even after she's eaten, he chooses to eat. He doesn't have to eat. But he chooses peace with Eve over peace with God. Because he rejects his identity. So rather than reject the identity, rather than repeat that sin of Adam, rather than repeat the sin of Lucifer, instead embrace the identity that God has given you. Receive that vision. And then number four, change your doing to match your being. Change your doing to match your being. My goal, my hope, my prayer is that each man that's here would de develop such a clear sense of your identity in Christ. That you would get such a clear picture of who God sees you to be. Such a clear image of the man that God created you to be that you would never again do anything that was inconsistent with that person. You know, that if you're tempted by a woman, you'd look at that ring and say, I'm a husband. I don't do that. Or you're tempted with something and say, I'm a father. I don't do that. I'm a man of God that God created to love him and to love my wife and to love my church and to serve him with passion. I don't do that. Because that's inconsistent with who I am. Okay, item four is to change your doing to match your being. That's one of the things that I love about the Marine Corps. We have any other competing forces here? One of the things I love about the Marines is you'll hear a story and they'll say, okay, you were in this firefight and such and such happened and you went and did this. Well, why did you do that? And their answer almost always is the same. I'm a Marine. I'm a Marine. And their sense of their identity is so clear for them that they don't need any other explanation than who they are. And that's what I think we need to learn as Christian men, to have such a clear, convicting sense of who we are as godly men, that we have this passion and commitment to never do anything that's inconsistent with who that is. Does that make sense?
And that's a place of passion. So the change you're doing to match your being. Do we have any questions? Yes. successful in implementing all this and continuing on and God continues to give me victories. I can put myself here 10 years from now and still say the sin in my life, I'll still relate to the Romans 7. I'll still relate. And when we're looking at kind of a balance, because I know also God gave me gifts to do and I have a job to do and I have a family to lead, but I can even say, you know, after I have a discussion with my daughter, for instance, um, you know, there's part of that, that, that sin is still there. I mean, what kind of, what kind of balance do you have of fighting the fight and still living your life because you know that, I mean, I got up this morning and I probably sinned a dozen times before I got here. Sure. So what, yeah. I mean, how, how do you rectify that balance? Where, where, mm-hmm. that, where does that go? Well, it's not really a matter of rectifying the balance. It's a matter of changing the, the reference point, if you will. Um, scripture says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Although we live in the world, we don't wage war with the weapons of this world. The weapons we fight with have divine power to cast down strongholds, tear down vain imaginings, and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God by, and here's the weapon part, holding captive every thought, making it obedient to Christ. This is that every thought that comes in our mind to recognize that not all the thoughts that are there are, are our own thoughts. Some of the thoughts that are there are accusations or temptations that are made. And we're to take those thoughts and hold those captive make them be into Christ. You might think, that seems like a huge burden to, to take all the energy that I'm spending now and start doing that. How in the world could I possibly do that? Well, the reality is we all already do that. You know, if I were to tell you that, you know, Ron, that the Marines are absolutely the best armed forces and all the others stink, what, what would you say? I'd say go Army. Go Army, okay. <laughs> See, he, he held that thought captive and he, and he held it up against the standard of truth that exists in his own mind. If I told you that you were the strongest physical specimen of a man I've ever seen, you would probably reject that. Why? Because you automatically, you intuitively hold that thought captive and you check it up against the standard. So the holding every thought captive is not the new part of the verse. That's not the new behavior we have to develop. We already hold every thought captive. What changes is making you obedient to Christ, that standard that we measured up against. And we have to feed the right dog enough and understand Scripture enough that our understanding of truth becomes clear enough that we're able to reject those things that are inconsistent with truth. That's what changes. So it's not the new behavior. And to recognize that I'm going to continue to sin until I die, that thank the Lord that he doesn't see me as this person that's still sinning. He sees me as a new creation. So I don't have to worry that he's upset with me or angry with me or disappointed in me because all this has already been forgiven anyway. What he wants me to do is to turn with him in my brokenness and allow that to draw me closer to him. He's, he's looking at the intimacy that comes from my brokenness. He's not looking at the judgment and the beating me up. He's desiring that, to, that sin, that struggle to take me to deeper intimacy with him. And so to go to him in that brokenness, to find God in the midst of whatever it is, and to know that every time I go through this process of brokenness, the battle becomes easier. Because every time I go through this place of brokenness, the flesh experiences a little bit more death. And that's what I'm longing for. It's to see that progress of the battle I fight today, although it's the same battle, 
than it was 20 years ago, it's an easier battle than it was 20 years ago because I'm fighting less flesh now than I was 20 years ago. And 20 years from now, I pray there will be much less. I expect it to still be there. But I expect that battle will be easier because I expect the spirit's going to be stronger and the flesh is going to be weaker. Yes, Steve? Adam, just let me just, I'm a picture kind of guy, so think about it. Sure. So you're saying in these last, last bits, God says, I'm this. Mm-hmm. He's defining this is who I am. Mm-hmm. I, there's nothing that can change that. The enemy is going to come to attack that identity that you have. Absolutely. That's, that's an ongoing thing. Whether you sin or don't sin, mm-hmm. the enemy is going to come and attack you. Right. You're in warfare all the time. Absolutely. I guess the place is, how do I know, and it's one of the steps, receiving a vision of what my true identity is. Mm-hmm. If I, if my identity is clouded, mm-hmm. which it, it is, I've got mm-hmm. some right, sure. some of God's right. essence of who I am, mm-hmm. and I'm believing the lies of the enemy too, sure. and they coexist. How do I really build up my identity of who God says I am? What's biblical, the best way to do that? Biblical community. You know, God himself exists in community. You know, God said, let us create man in our image. It's where we, one of the, the, the basis where we get the Trinitarian view of God, that God itself exists in community. That's the ultimate reality, is community. Therefore, there's nothing we can think of doing spiritually that can exist outside of community. We need each other. That's part of the divine plan. And when you're participating in a group with men and you're saying, I'm struggling in this area, and somebody says, you know, I am too. You know, um, but thankfully... You know, God has forgiven us from that. And, and Steve, when I look at you, I don't see that sin. This is what I see. I see your persistency in continuing to come to God. And when you hear that, you think, oh, thank God that you see that. And that there's a brokenness, a miniature brokenness that comes from somebody pointing out how they see God working in you. And it helps you to get that clearer sense. So what, what you're saying is, if you're trying to live solo, mm-hmm. the enemy can pick you off like a sign. Oh, absolutely. But if sure. you're around a bunch of other Men mm-hmm. that know you, I mean, mm-hmm. they know you're good, sure. you're bad, ugly, all those things. Mm-hmm. They can speak God's truth into you, and therefore, sure. instead of going down into the depths of despair and shame sure. and all the crap that the enemy can bring, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll destroy you quicker. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, here's you another visual. You may think you're a lone wolf, but really you're a lone sheep. <laughs> and who does the wolf go after? The lone sheep. All right. Absolutely. We need to be participating in community. Absolutely. All right, guys, we need to wrap up. We were supposed to go straight into the worship center. Right, let me say a quick prayer. Father God, take these seeds of truth that we planted, to nurse them till they produce the fruit of your presence in our life, which in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message from the 2015 Man Up Men's Retreat hosted by Houston's First Baptist Church. We hope this message has been encouraging to you and pray you have a great day.